Hi, everyone. Mark here with a quick message before we get to our truly wonderful episode. For all of our regular listeners, I hope you noticed that we haven't had a sponsor for the past few episodes. And that's honestly because I wanted to instead be a little self-promotional during the first month of my book launch. As a quick update, Lead from the Heart has held a consistent bestseller ranking in the HR and people management category since it launched. And my publisher unexpectedly just told me it's producing a special edition for India that will come out in November. So that's got me very excited and reader reviews have started coming in and I thought I'd read you the one that I thought was the most flattering. Here goes. It says, Mark is the real deal. He truly embodies heart-led leadership and as such, it's no wonder his leadership thesis has been so widely embraced by organizations and leaders all over the world. His revised classic is a must-have on your shelf and refer back to as you navigate the murky waters of this post-pandemic workplace. As leaders look to bring employee engagement back from crisis levels, Lead from the Heart reminds us that it's the heart, not the mind, that drives human motivation and achievement. Leading from the Heart isn't soft, it's critical, as is this book, a revolutionary research-backed read. Well, that made me smile, of course, because it is a wonderful testimonial. And I will admit there are hundreds more reviews with a few bad ones mixed in that you can read on Amazon's website. But with a dream of truly helping to change the world, at least in leadership, I personally invite you to check out my book and pick up a copy or two in the coming days. Now, on to our show. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Just as it's true in life overall, leadership is full of paradoxes. Should we build close relationships with our employees or keep a suitable distance? Should we trust our staff or keep an eye on what's happening? Are we better off displaying self-confidence or is humility a greater power? For many of us, these competing and interwoven demands are a source of conflict. Since our brains love to make either or choices, we choose one option over the other. In effect, we deal with uncertainty by asserting certainty. And the problem with that is that once we declare certainty and rule out one option over the other, we effectively undermine our potential success by needlessly believing that there's no way of achieving both. In other words, we get it all wrong when we think that as managers, we can't be humble and decisive or believe it's impossible to build close relationships with employees and retain an appropriate distance. In their new bestseller, Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems, Wendy Smith and Marianne Lewis tap into 25 years of their own pioneering research to prove that there's a far more informed and enlightened way of approaching paradoxes in our lives. And in what suddenly become common language, their solution is called both-end thinking. The driving question that motivated Smith and Lewis in their extensive research was, what underlies our toughest problems and how can we deal with it? At the heart of this question, was their realization that if we all had better approaches to our problems, we could consistently develop more effective, creative, and sustainable solutions. For years, we've seen either-or thinking play out in business. We've seen how values and ethics get tossed aside in the interest of making profits, and we've seen CEOs defer exclusively to the demands of shareholders, even when doing so has harmed all other stakeholders, including employees. And these are just two clear examples of how either-or bias continues to drive our decision-making. 
Dr. Wendy Smith is a professor of management at the University of Delaware's Warner College of Business and Economics and the academic director of her school's Women's Leadership Initiative. Dr. Marianne Lewis is the dean of the University of Cincinnati's Lindner School of Business. And together, they share some truly brilliant insights that bring great clarity to a new and empowered way of thinking and the information they share will only help make you a more effective leader, I'm absolutely certain it's about to change your life. I've just recorded my interview with Wendy and Mara, and all I can say once again is that you are truly in for a treat. Now let me formally welcome Wendy and Mara to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Hi, Mark. It's nice to be here. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having us. Well, we're looking forward to it. And this is actually the second time We've had two guests, and the first time we've had two guests in very different locations and geographies, so this is going to be fun. It'll be a little more challenging than what I'm used to, but you guys are up for it, I'm certain. So let me get started. When I saw the title of your book, I instinctively thought, okay, someone was inevitably going to write this book, what with the both and thinking language that recently has become a more common mantra. But to your credit, once I started reading it, I realized you both have devoted years of work to researching this. Like this is your life's work. And so let's get our listeners grounded by having you tell us why it's so easy to get fenced in by either or thinking and why it's so much more expansive to adopt both and thinking. Well, Mark, maybe I'll, I'll get us started. This is Wendy. And I love that you started out with this question. When we first started studying this idea of both and 20, 25 years ago, we had to convince people to move from either or to both and. And indeed, we see this language, this label all over the place. And the reason, one of the reasons we wrote the book was not just to move from either or to both and, it was to help people when they talk about both and and win-win and even talk in this language of paradox to explore how to do it. And it is in fact true. There are we like to think that we're in the win-win. We like to think that we think both and, but our psychology, our cognition, our emotions bring us right back into either or thinking because emotionally we want an answer and either or thinking gives us a quick answer because our ego, we want to be right. And either or thinking leads us into the I'm right, you're wrong kind of thinking. Mm. And then our constructs of the world, the world around us is leading us into such polarization that's reinforcing either or thinking. So we have all of these factors, both at the global level and then at our own individual emotional and cognitive level that really reinforce either or. So that even if we say we want to do both and, it's not easy to do. You know, you just said something that I want to pin down a little bit because it does seem in my lifetime that the either or thinking and the separation of you're wrong, I'm right, that seems to be so much more pervasive. I mean, there's just like this line between us in our beliefs and we're so strident with them. So either of you have a sense of why society has become so divided as it is today in that respect? Well, Mark, one of the things that we've studied and we write about in our book is that there are a number of vicious cycles that we get caught in when we really lean into our either or thinking, we lean toward our preferred side. We talk about that we dig deep ruts because the way we think tends to reinforce what we see. Our emotions tend to get caught up in this and we kind of go down this rabbit hole. We get increasingly deep into a particular side 
or approach. But these other piece to that is what we call turf warfare or really digging of separate tensions, separate trenches. So what we're seeing in polarization is something Wendy and I talk about so much both together and now in our in our research and in conversations that we have is basically people in different opposing ruts. And it's really hard to get out of our own ruts, but then actually we can be reinforced in our own thinking because we're now combating someone else. So rather than listening and asking, okay, well, help me understand why you're thinking this, where you're coming from, what your experience has been. Our first reaction is to defend aggressively, if not kind of diminish, even dehumanize the opposing side. And really what happens with that, this is why we call it trench warfare, is we dig our own trenches deeper. And it really gets us stuck and polarized. That's wonderful. I'm really glad I asked the question. And you just used a word that wasn't coming to me But when you said it, I was like, that's it. We pick sides. Mm -hmm. And so picking a side obviously leads us into either or thinking. So I'm on one side, you're on another side, and somebody says X, is this supporting me in my side or not supporting me on my side? And that completely undermines the whole end part of your discussion, the end or. So why are we picking sides? Is this just ego or is there something going on in society right now that leaders can be more mindful of, all of us can be more mindful of, and maybe we can even improve or fix? You know, I think there's a couple of reasons that generally why we pick side. I think there's something evolutionary about it. There's something about the fact that we not only want to be right, but we want to be legitimized in that right by being part of a group. And so there's groupthink that goes along with that. I think that there's also something about the experience of uncertainty. So I know a lot of people are writing about uncertainty. Uh, I think you said you had the furs on the show as well who have been writing about uncertainty. There is a lot of uncertainty in the world. It makes us feel anxious. And when we are facing a dilemma or a choice or a challenge, the quickest way to certainty is to make a quick decision and then move on. And that's either or thinking. And if we're feeling anxious about the uncertainty and we want to get to that certainty quicker, therefore we make those decisions more quickly. But none of that is a good instinct from a leadership standpoint, right? So if I have a view of the world and you present something that's different to me, i.e. you as my employee or you as my peer, if I'm going to go to the side aspect of this, I'm going to go to either or thinking, not yes and thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge limitation. Oh, absolutely. Especially, I mean, one of the things that Wendy and I have, have found is that the tensions that underlie our greatest challenges, and we think of them as paradoxes, are fueled by change, scarcity, and plurality. Plurality meaning kind of competing stakeholders, competing demands. I mean, this is the perfect storm of change, scarcity, and plurality that we're in right now. And that just makes it so that our problems, our challenges are that much more complicated and messy. So this one-sided, oversimplified, over-rationalized thinking is really a trap for leaders because it's undermining the greater complexity that we need to be working through. Well said. Well, I'll add to that as well and just note that what we have unpacked in our research, and this is where Marianne was saying the tensions that underlie our dilemmas, 
is this idea that we face these dilemmas that present themselves as trade-offs to us. So do I spend time right now with my family or doing what I need to for work? Am I going to put more resources right now into the engineers that are focused on the product for today or the product for tomorrow? They present themselves as these either-ors. The important piece is that underlying those either-ors are these paradoxes. And it's this idea that there are these persistent, contradictory, yet interdependent relationships. And we would argue that our world is based on these interdependent opposites. The idea of living for today and living for tomorrow, focusing on the short term and focusing on the long term, living for the self and doing what you need to for the self while also addressing what you need to for others, giving and taking, being introverted and extroverted. It's these underlying paradoxical relationships that drive our world. And once we can notice those and see those, we can open up to so much more creativity. That's where applying both and thinking allows us to be more creative, more sustainable, more generative. And so to your point about leaders, we've studied lots of leaders over the years. And the leaders that are most effective are the ones that all leaders confront ongoing competing demands. The most effective ones are the ones that are able to see these interdependencies in their competing demands and come up with a both and or more generative solution to them. So before we go any further, do me a favor and really clearly explain what it means to use end or thinking. So what we contrast is either or thinking and both and. And so either or thinking would be Look, you're facing a dilemma in your organization. It might be a strategic dilemma. Do I expand globally or do I focus more and go more deep locally? Something about how deep or how broadly. Do I focus more on doubling down on my existing product or do I think about putting more resources into innovations and exploring for the future? Those are the dilemmas that we face and they present themselves as either or. So either or thinking is the process that we all learn in business school. And by the way, we're both business school professors. We teach this. We see our colleagues teach this. It's part of our natural way, which is to look at those, to pull them apart, to make the pro-con list, and then to make a choice. And that's the nature of either or thinking is making that choice. Both and thinking invites us to pause when we experience these dilemmas and take a look, almost look under the hood, if you will, at these paradoxes, these paradoxical interdependent opposite relationships and start exploring how can I accommodate these competing demands simultaneously? How can I both focus on today and explore for the future? How can I address the needs that I have for myself and be able to be giving and available to others? How can I, to use some of your work, use my heart and my gut and my instinct and allow it to inform my head and my cognition and my rational thinking. And the important piece here is that by shifting that question into how can I accommodate the both and, you're not just sort of saying, how can I do these both simultaneously, but you're looking at and trying to figure out how it is that one thing triggers its opposite. How does love trigger hate? How does focusing on the long term, enable us to do better in the short term. So it really opens up a whole new way of thinking about the challenges that we face in the world, whether it's our individual challenges or whether it's our 
global societal challenges and everything in between. So your answers are coming through that you've spent, you know, 25 years on this. What motivated you to collectively, like, how did you meet? What influenced you to do this work and to focus on this? You know, it's interesting. Both Wendy and I ended up doing research in our own dissertations, and we did them at different times that led us in this direction. And And I'm a little older. I started this first and was studying basically automation. And I was studying what is the potential and challenges of implementing innovation. And although that was my research question, all I found were tensions. I mean, is automation de-skilling or skill upgrading? Is it about control or flexibility? And okay, so, and I could keep going. And as I was studying these tensions, I realized we swim in tensions. We swim in them at an individual level, at a strategic level, at a societal level. And I really went down a path of exploring this paradoxes and tensions from philosophy, psychology, and other places. And I started writing on this broader question of what is the nature of organizational tensions? How do paradoxes underlie them? And then Wendy reached out to me because she was studying something similar in her dissertation. Yeah, Mark, I was taking a class in grad school with Warren Bennis, who in the leadership world Mm -hmm. is well known. And Warren once talked about stalking his mentor. So I talk about having stalked Marianne. I called her up. What she didn't say was that she had written a brilliant article that won our journals, the top journals, best paper of the year, putting the idea of paradoxes and tensions onto the radar screen of academics. And I was studying this tension between today and tomorrow at IBM and watching as senior leaders at IBM were making decisions, trying to hold both their existing world and at the same time innovate and how they were navigating it and watching different leaders' approaches to this and seeing these tensions as paradoxes. And I read Marianne's article and I just stopped her. I called her up. I said, I need to understand everything you know about this. And we like to say the rest was history. We've been working together ever since. So, Wendy, when you were at IBM, did you find, because you were working specifically with managers and the challenge of focusing on today and the future, did you find that managers that you were working with did that seamlessly? Did they resist? Were they able to move away from either or thinking and adopt more of both end thinking? Well, as you can imagine, and probably as is good for any good research study, it really varied. And that's what was really interesting to me. Uh, I was looking at the general managers of the strategic business units and their teams, and they had really varied approaches to doing so. One of the leaders that did this really well, and we write about in the book, was Janet Perna, who was the head of the database management group. And what she did particularly well was that she was very clear on an overarching vision of what the unit was trying to accomplish. They were at that time moving from databases that would be sold to the back office of companies and would really manage all of the company's data, their numbers data, their letter data, but they were moving into databases that would power the webs. It was really different kind of data. It was video and audio and unstructured data. And it wasn't being used for back office. It was being used as the main product that people were creating. And so it was a different customer and it was a different programming language that they were working in. It was just different all around. And Janet was brilliant in being able to say to her team, look, 
we have this overarching vision. We're going to be number one in databases, and that requires us to continue to do what we're doing in the back office database that we've always been working in and to innovate. And we've got to work together to collaborate. We've got to make both of those sides strong and think about how we could collaborate and work together. And she was brilliant at that. You know, and so we talk about in the book the importance in managing paradox of having this overarching vision that pulls people together, but then also the importance of, we call it separating and connecting, being able to pull apart these different pieces so that you can really do a deep dive and focus on each one and understand each one in service of being able to find the points of connection and the points of synergy and integration. So she was able to focus on this overarching vision think about this, how to separate and how to connect and structure her team around it and was quite brilliant at doing that. So what characterized her and or all the people that you saw that were able to really make the transition so easily? What was her mindset that said, we have to focus on what's in front of us and we're going to successfully focus on what's coming? How did she make that transition and what was her mindset? So one of the things that we talk about in navigating paradoxes in both and thinking is we say, look, you've got to get the structures right. So you've got to get the organizational structure right. You also have to be dynamic. And so that's kind of the contextual side. The side that you're asking about, which is really important, is at the individual level, what do you need? And actually, to Mark, to some of your work, it's both the cognitive mindset and it's the emotional side, right? So The mindset is all about this idea of being able to have what we call a paradox mindset. And we've done some significant work with our colleagues, Ella Marone-Spector and Josh Keller and Amy Ingram. We've developed a paradox mindset inventory. What's critical in a paradox mindset is that people are able to do two things. They're able to notice the tension, see them, not hide from them. They raise them up. They point them out. And so that's what Janet Perna did. There's tensions here. We've got to talk about them and not hide them under the rug. And they have to be able to bring this both and approach to them. So now we've got this tension and it's about changing the question. How can we accommodate what we currently do with what we do going forward? I'll just say one more sentence because I think, again, Mark, to some of the work you do, the other part that we find is really important is the heart or the emotions of how they feel about this. And what is important here, we talk about the importance of being able to find comfort in the discomfort. It's one of the reasons that people don't go to the both and is just because it's emotionally really uncomfortable. It's uncertain, like we were saying before, but it's also a little bit irrational to hold opposites at the same time. It just feels uncomfortable. And What we see in great leaders like Janet Perna is to be able to live in that discomfort, to find comfort in that discomfort. That's fantastic. Seriously, that's really fantastic. And I I love the language of find comfort in the discomfort. And I think that the FERS sort of alluded to that a few episodes ago, that you really have to live in that sense of ambiguity comfortably, understanding that our control over the world was always an illusion anyway, you know. But let me give you a very simple example. And you just also use language that I love, which is changing the question. So I work for you both. You're a collective manager. And I come to you and I say, look, I have decided that I need a 15% raise. And I need it because I'm an exceptional employee and I don't think I'm being paid as well as I need to. 
So using either or thinking, you would automatically say, well, you know, there's no way I can give you a 15% raise. You know what our budgets are. So I just can't give that to you. Give me an example of what a manager could do to change the question to employ both and thinking. Well, I would suggest that one of the starting ways to do that is to complicate the question. Because the way that you've just phrased this question is, do I get a raise or not? Mm -hmm. Either or. Whereas what I think that you're asking is, how do I receive more for my value? Or that I'm missing things in my work and or life experience and that I need more of. And so I'm not trying to evade the question. I would be trying to find out what is it you're really seeking? Because I may have limitations today on my ability to give you a 15% raise, but there is so much more. Are you really interested in leveraging your time better? Do you want to have more impact? Are you looking to lead? Are you, right? So I'd be teasing out, let's add ands to this question so that it's not strictly about money. If money is going to be a real challenge, we talk about one of the important factors for building a paradox mindset is to shift your core assumptions. So a key assumption in an either or mindset and in both ends for that matter is what do you assume is the nature of resources? And in an either or mindset, it's very much the fixed pie concept, meaning if I win, you lose or some other approach to we're just going to slice this pie differently. In a both and mindset, we talk about actually, rather than thinking of resources as scarce, thinking about them as abundance, an abundance mindset. And that really is about understanding what is the value? How do we expand the value? It's more than just a hundred pennies to a dollar. It's what is it that you're seeking here? So part of my push would be to understand, let's think more about what your worth is and what do you value and what are you seeking here because there are other resources as a leader at my disposal that it would help me to better understand you and I would take this advice straight from Marianne because she's a dean and has probably had to have this conversation many times (laughs) and I I would also add I think that in these kinds of negotiations so many of your listeners would note that this is kind of at the heart of negotiations which Mm -hmm. is how do you go from a distributive negotiation where you're just splitting the pie to an integrative negotiation where you're expanding the pie before you split it. And these ideas are, you know, right in getting to, yes, the negotiations Bible or one of our favorite authors from the early 1900s, Mary Parker Follette, who talks about moving from a, you know, an either or decision where one's right or one's wrong and even moving away from just a compromise to getting to an integrative decision where there, each side gets the benefit along the way. You know, let me go back to what you just said, Marianne, in terms of my response was, I want a 15% raise. Mm-hmm. And you you intuited, you started asking yourself, I mean, this is an illustration for our audience, right? That's what we're going through here. And you did something brilliant, which was, why is Mark asking for a 15% raise? Does he just want to mm-hmm. go buy a new car? Does he just want more money? And you backed out and said, Is he feeling valued? Is he growing? Is he developing? Are there alternatives to giving him a 15% raise that will make him happy? Will actually make him even happier? Because I'm recognizing that there might be something bigger to this request Mm -hmm. that transcends the money and income standpoint. 
that's the gift that you just gave to the, our audience. Because that, I don't know that necessarily everyone listening to this understands what you were referring to, both of you, in terms of negotiations and looking for ways to make it a win-win, expanding the pie versus you win, I lose versus coming up with alternatives where nobody wins. If you don't give me what I want, then I'm moving. And so I think what you just said is really the illustration that I was looking for, because it starts with what is the real question? And how do I answer that question versus the one that's been posed to me? And I love the language you use to just kind of rephrase it again, because it goes back to the both the heart and the mind. The kind of discussion that we're having now is a far more compassionate, personal discussion than let's talk about the money, right? Because it's much more about the person. And I think it sends a stronger signal about what we want for and from each other in this relationship and the work going forward. I mean, it's a cultural change kind of conversation and very supportive rather than transactional. I honestly don't know that I've ever had guests in the plural, but uh, both of you individually really are punctuating one of the core messages of this podcast. I just have to compliment you because it's not just rational. If it was rational, it would just be, I can't give you the 15% and you know better than asking. <laughs> it's the heart that comes in and starts asking what's really going on here and why is she coming to me or why is he asking me this question now? And what are ways that I can be compassionate about, understand what the real need is and see if I can solve that? That's the heart. And they work together. You have to have them together. And you guys have invoked this several times today. I'm just like in awe of it. So thank you. Wendy, you tell a highly illustrative story about friends of yours who lived in China for many years and a difficult choice to make when it came to choosing the best school for their daughter once they moved back and she had to reimmerse herself in the United States. So tell us the story. I thought this was very interesting and in how you coached your friends to navigate the paradox. Yeah, Mark, I love that you pulled out that story. It was really a poignant moment. And I'll just say the key to the story was the importance of experimentation. And so what, what happened was that these friends of mine had been living in China for a number of years. Their kids were born in China. They moved back to the United States. Their daughter was particularly international. The schools in their neighborhood weren't going to accommodate what she needed. And they were considering, this is a high school student, actually, they were considering sending her to a boarding school because the school was going to offer what she really needed. But this was a family that had not sent their kids to boarding schools in the past. It wasn't culturally something that they did. They recognized that sending her off was going to change the family dynamic. It would mean that she would be out of that house sooner than they anticipated. There was all kinds of reasons to do it and all kinds of reasons not to. And, and they'll acknowledge straight up that it is certainly this kind of decision. We all make these kinds of decisions of what we do for our family and our kids. In particular, being able to send them to a boarding school is, is a wonderful privilege and opportunity. But we all make these kinds of decisions that really it feels like, which one of these do we choose? And in our conversation, it was actually while I was writing this section of the book that we were having this conversation. In the conversation, one of the things we talked about was being able to make the choice, but leave open the possibility for different choices going forward. Mm -hmm. We talked about that as the importance of being dynamic, of experimenting, of trying something new, of seeing if it works, if it does work, great going with it. If it doesn't work, changing things up experimenting along the way, rapidly prototyping, trying it out, seeing what happens, and then shifting. In part, it relates. So for us, 
an important component to navigating paradox is this idea of being dynamic. And if we can step back for a minute, one of the ways that we talk about navigating these competing demands is through what we call tightrope walking. So people like to think that there's a both and where there's always this win-win, this like perfect creative integration. And we call that option the mule because it's this perfect integration between the horse and the donkey. It's uh, stronger than a horse, smarter than a donkey, bring them together and you've got the mule. And that perfect integration happens sometimes, these ideal win-wins, but they don't always happen. And sometimes the way that we have to navigate competing demands, things like work and life or things like focusing on the short term or the long term, is that we make these micro decisions where we shift back and forth between one option or the other. And to make those micro decisions, we're constantly being dynamic. We're acting like a tightrope walker who is indeed focused on a goal and trying to get somewhere, but moving in these micro shifts left and right. They're never completely balanced. They're always balancing. And what that looks like in our life would be, for example, if we're navigating work-life demands, sometimes we're shifting a little bit toward more work, sometimes a little bit toward more of our decisions for life, but we're not getting stuck in overemphasizing one or the other. Mm-hmm. And so it's dynamic. And if you think back to this friend of mine, this idea of experimenting. So in this case, they're focusing a little bit more on what their daughter needs, but maybe not what the whole unit of the family needed. And, you know, the family wanted her to stay home, but she needed and wanted to be at this fantastic educational experience. And yet they will be able to shift to say, okay, well, how do we reintegrate her back into our family needs as a family unit? And so there's this constant shifting or dynamism that happens. And that was what that story came to demonstrate. It's a really great example. As I'm listening to you, it didn't strike me when I was reading your book, but it struck me just now that the first time I ever heard that line of thinking was from Jeff Bezos. And he said, no decision is permanent. Mm. So make your best choice, experiment, and then pivot. Like, you know, Mm. unwind it if you need to, but just what you were just talking about, like make the best decision and experiment, see how it goes. But I think, again, tied to your either or thinking, it's like, well, if I send her to school, we may never see her again. It's like, well, maybe not, you know, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So really great. Thank you. This is something else that I was never aware of, but really startled me when I read it for its brilliance, really. Since the 1980s on the walls of the offices at Lego are 11 leadership paradoxes. Let me read a few of these for our audience here. So the first one is to be able to build a close relationship with one's staff and to keep a suitable distance, to trust one's staff and to keep an eye on what's happening to be sure of yourself and to be humble, to do a good job of planning your own time and to be flexible with your schedule. So as two people who've been studying paradoxes, these are major paradoxes, and yet they are the leadership mantra for the managers at Lego, I take it. So tell us about them and how do you effectively accomplish them? So there's a bit further story to this one, Mark. So I was studying Lego with a colleague of mine in Denmark. Her name is Lada Luscher in the 2000s, the early 2000s, when Lego was really going through some major challenges, a big restructuring. And in fact, 
she had been called in to do some work and then brought me in because these managers were struggling to understand how do I manage a self-managed team? Okay. So they were really grappling with, I don't understand. Am I supervising or am I empowering? Are we about building a team or are we about hitting targets? And they were going back and forth through these pieces. And so we worked through this process of helping them see how these needs were really paradoxical. Actually, that the more kind of clear our targets and support systems, the more that they can be empowered within them. And we've kind of worked through. But as we were doing that, and we were using the notion of paradox, kind of the yin-yang and how we could see the two sides defining and working each other, one of the leaders at Lego said, oh my goodness, these are the paradoxes that are on our walls. And so they pulled out the paradoxes you're talking about, the 11 paradoxes of Lego. They're in Lego's museum as well. They are brilliant. They've been there for ages. But these people, as they were dealing with this major restructuring, had not actually thought about the power of the term and the concepts and wisdom of paradox in their own leadership. So they'd always been hanging there. Back to kind of Wendy's opening piece, they'd never thought of paradox as a tool to help them work through these challenges. And they were dealing with them at that moment in Lego. Is it through practice that we get good at this? I think it's a combination of practice, which is actually what we were doing with Lada, especially with the managers at Lego, is actually having practice working through the tensions. There's no doubt the fuel to that working through process was exploring the tensions as a paradox. Actually pushing themselves to think, How would I make that trade-off? And when they would become so paralyzed realizing, for example, oh, you can't make this trade-off, right? I I do have to empower them and I have to hit my targets. I do need to build my teams and I need to think about how I provide structures. So there is not a trade-off to be made. And it actually took almost hitting that blockage to say, let's step back. Let's think about the yin-yang. How do these flow into each other and how might we approach the process differently that the practices really began to take off at Lego? These brilliant 11 paradox hanging on their walls took on a whole new meaning. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a really ironic, but also it is <laughs> really, yeah, it was a nice aha throughout that experience with them. All right, well, let's keep talking about paradoxes then because you talk about the paradox mindset and this is a question that actually popped into my mind earlier to ask you, but now it sort of fits perfectly with what you just mentioned. Going back to the earlier part of the conversation where we were talking about just this massive divisiveness that's in our society with win-lose kind of thinking and I'm right and you're wrong kind of thinking and, and really the whole philosophy of either or thinking. It's really the essence of this. You talk about the assumption that there are multiple points of view that can coexist, which is an idea that I'm not certain that everybody's ever really thought about. And so you say that we often don't see or appreciate other views because we take it as it's either aligned to our thinking or not aligned to our thinking. And so I want to give this frame just a little bit more clarity. In a workplace, You get into a meeting and you're debating a marketing strategy or where you're going to be spending money or what the goals are. And somebody says, I believe we should do this. And if I have a view that we should do the opposite of that, I'm going to have an inclination to go, that guy's a jerk. As opposed to, wait a minute, let me understand 
what this person is even saying. Like, how is he forming his ideas and where are they coming from? And could they inform me so that I can make a better decision as opposed to I'm entrenched in this. That guy's a jerk. I don't want to work with him anymore. And I'm going to be saying bad things about him as soon as this meeting is over. That's kind of my experience in the world, unfortunately. So I'll stop there. Mark, I'll jump in and say that problem, which we definitely see in the workplace between different units or different people with different perspectives, that gets played out across our experiences, right? So I had a conversation like that with my husband just the other day where he said one thing, I said another, and the two of us just dug our heels in. Now, I don't think we said to each other that person's a jerk, but some partners do. And we see that same thing reproduce itself in how we think about politics and the assumptions that we make about people who we haven't even bothered to listen to and understand across the political spectrum, when much of the time, often, we have actually similar values and might even have similar solutions, we just talk about them differently, that there's much more commonality than we notice. And so I think that the problem that you're pointing to is one that we see all over the place. This is the polarization issue. You know, we like to tell the story of the Hindu parable of the blind people and the elephant as illustration of what's possible. And the parable goes that a number, and, and people might have heard this before, but the parable basically goes that a number of people approach an elephant, blind people approach an elephant, they each feel different parts of the elephant. One feels the feet and is sure that they have come to a tree trunk and one feels the tail and sure that they came to a swing and one feels the tusks and sure that this is a spear. And so they each argue for what they are seeing without first pausing to listen to one another, to understand, and then to explore where there's connections between their different perspectives to see the whole elephant. And I think that in the situation that you are describing, the first step that we recommend to leaders is that when we are so sure that we have a different opinion than someone else, the first step might be to take a deep breath, to pause, and then to just get curious and listen to what they have to say. Listening doesn't necessarily mean that you agree. It means that you respect the other person enough to appreciate that they have a different point of view. And it's through that listening and curiosity that you will learn more that you will gain more respect and convey more respect and that you'll be able to come to a better decision together. That's fantastic. And I, I love that you're sharing a Hindu parable because I think in a lot of ways, when we think about it, we admire managers who are open to other ideas, who don't shut people down, who demonstrate a curiosity. Tell me what you are thinking. How are you being influenced by this? You know, is this a spear? Is this a, you know... Is this a foot? What is it in your mind? And being open to that, I think it's because it's not just extraordinary, but it's rare. It's people are moving so quickly. Yeah. And I'll expand on that and say, not only do we admire those managers, our research with our colleagues has shown that those kind of leaders are the ones that are more productive, that are more creative, and that are happier in their jobs. And our colleague, Mariah Besheroff, her research says those are the kind of people that actually get promoted because they are the ones that can handle the messy, complex situations that managers often have to handle when there's these opposing ideas. So it's both that we admire them and instrumentally, they do better. Fantastic. 
<laughs> really fantastic. I'm having so much fun here. I hope you can tell. I'm keeping track of time here, and I have a couple more questions for you that I want to get to. And, and this one has to do with a topic that really we haven't spoken about, but you mentioned in the book. So, and you actually referenced this person earlier. Harry Emerson Fosdick says, people will work hard for money. They will work harder for other people, but people will work hardest of all when they're working for a cause. And so, you know, we all know today that people are seeking a sense of meaning and purpose at work. What's your advice to leaders on how they can help their employees actually find that purpose? To us, a key piece of that, Mark, is that when we're dealing with tensions, right, we feel kind of the tug of war, setting a higher bar which to us is higher purpose, is meaning, is absolutely invaluable to keep working through those challenges. Now, I think part of it is to figure out really what matters most in a shared way. Some of the conflicts that you've raised before, these challenges of polarization, I would suggest can be an issue of the bar being a bit too low. It goes more into the how Hmm. than the why. I mean, this is Simon Sinek, but I think it's more than that as well. It's the let's have a higher purpose for why we're working in this direction. And I mean, I think it's it's not an easy thing to do, but it's just absolutely critical. It's one thing to say we're going to argue over, I mean, pick your world global challenge or more individual challenge. You know, how are we going to deal with climate change and environmental challenge? It's a different question to say, how are we going to make the world better? How are we going to really talk about having a sustainable future? And is there a way to start talking in language that isn't paralyzing because it kind of fuels the competition or combative nature between sides, but says, we all want X. Let's work together to get there. And I think on more individual level, do so in a way that helps the individual employee, even the individual leader think, And what could be my role working in that direction? So you're both university dean, business school deans. Have you ever done this with your own teams, brought them together and said, let's define the purpose? Like, what are we trying to accomplish as a university? What are we trying to accomplish as a business school? What are we trying to accomplish that's meaningful and purposeful as educators with students that are going to go out into the world? Have you ever done that? Yeah. So I've been a dean twice and I'm a, sometimes you learn the hard way. The first time you have a particular leadership role, I jumped right into let's build a strategy. And I mean, you need the strategic elements. But when I that was in London, when I was a dean in London, when I came back to Cincinnati as dean, what I learned from that experience was I need the why first. Mm -hmm. So I actually partnered with a fellow by the name of Jim Stangle, who was the former CMO of Procter & Gamble here in Cincinnati and had a really good discussion. And he led us through a host of really my first month to two months of focus groups with all stakeholders starting inside the business school to say, what is our higher purpose? And that changed all of the discussions moving forward around strategy, because once we had that why situated, the, okay, how do we get there? The why is high enough. You realize there are lots of paths to that particular why. Now we can start to explore what makes the most sense in terms of a path that leverages our individual as well as our collective strengths, distinctions, and constraints. Totally glad I asked that question. Thank you. 
Okay, so Wendy and Marianne, we have a podcast tradition where we briefly break away from the discussion and transition into what we cleverly call the heartbeat round. What I'd like to do is ask you a dozen or so questions. Actually, I have a dozen exact questions about your life philosophy and influences and have you answer each one with a quick, instinctive answer. And we're going to go through this with both of you. So in other words, answer each one in a heartbeat. And I think we said, Mary, you're going to go first. So are you ready to go? I'm ready. You write that, quote, reading ancient and modern texts of literature, philosophy, and so forth reminds us that ongoing tensions are part of the perpetual human condition. So what are a few of these texts you'd urge every listener to read? Oh, a couple I would say is The Tao of Physics by Capra and Rothenberg's Janusian Thinking. Awesome. Something important that you specifically learned in the process of writing your book. Whatever the book that you're writing, it's about storytelling. The quality you admire most in other people. Creativity. One subject you believe all workplace managers would be wise to bone up on. Psychological safety and the brilliant work of Amy Edmondson. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Travel or better live someplace truly beyond their comfort zone. Prediction about the future you're pretty sure is going to come true. AI to fuel creativity and innovation. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Listening. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? A both and thinking. Shame. <laughs> <laughs> the quality derails the most leadership careers. Ego. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. A lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. Oh, patience. And cats or dogs? I'm all about dogs. That was a trap question, actually. It was either or, (laughs) right? (laughs) We love them both. We love them both. All right. So, Wendy, you heads up on that one. (laughs) All right. Now I have to answer differently, but I'm a dog person, too. (laughs) Thank you, Mayor. Okay. Thank you. So, here we go. Same questions. You write that reading ancient and modern texts of literature, philosophy, and so forth reminds us that ongoing tensions are part of the perpetual human condition. What are a few of the texts you'd urge every listener to read? I'm going to go with two. I love Martin Buber's book, I and Thou. And also I'm a huge fan of Mary Parker Follett and her book, Creative Integration. Something important you specifically learned in the process of writing your book. I learned that you've got to believe in your ideas, that good ideas prevail even when people tell you that they might not. Bravo. The quality you admire most in other people. Openness and willingness to change. One subject you believe all workplace managers would be wise to bone up on. You know, I'm going to go with paradox and both and thinking for this one. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. I think everyone should take a big risk and feel what it feels like to succeed. Love it. Prediction about the future you're pretty sure will come true. I think we're in a pretty perilous moment and things might get worse, but they will get better. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Respect and dignity, especially when you're dealing with people that have different points of view than you. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? I think it's letting go. Letting go of control. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Holding on too tight, particularly to your own ego. Your synonym for the word heart. Mm, I think it's living. That's how we live. And a lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. 
Well, I wish I learned to let go and let go of control much earlier. <laughs> Great. And we know it's dog for you, not cats and dogs. These are great. Yeah, I'm really glad I'm we had on this one. <laughs> I'm really glad we had time to go through both of you rather because you had great answers. So thank you for going through this with me. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Before we let you go, Wendy and Marianne, I'd love to turn the stage over to you and ask you both. If you have some final punctuating thoughts, knowing this, of course, is a leadership podcast with an audience of workplace managers, pretty much at all levels, what do you want them to most remember from your research and from your book? Well, I can start and say we see lots of challenges in the workplace, lots of challenges and opportunities in the world that we live in. And we really deeply believe that we can get to better solutions, more creative, more sustainable solutions, if we can pause, value opposing perspectives on these challenges, and work together toward more integrative, creative solutions. So we wrote this book in part starting off with challenges in the workplace, but we think that these are really important issues that will lead us to better organizations and a better society and and welcome people to come along on the ride of thinking about both anding in the world. And I will just build from that and some of the discussion that we've had, Mark, is kind of along the lines of tough love or the cognitive, the head and the emotional, the heart, is that it's going to take hard work and discipline and structures and done so in a way that is compassionate, caring, and that thinks about the power of the individual and of our collective well-being. And I think that that blend helps us be better both and thinkers in the tools that we're talking about. Beautifully said, both of you. I want to say this. The world is so much better off with having you both as business school deans. I'm so impressed with both of you, and I don't gush over my guests very often, to be honest with you, as much as I admire them. But your answers were just wonderful, and your understanding of what this whole audience is thinking about most of the time is uh, so spot on that I just have to compliment you. So on behalf of my audience, thank you so very much, Wendy Smith, Marianne Lewis. It's been a, just a great delight. Thanks, Mark. It's really been fun having this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Mark, for all you do. Pleasure. Quickly, before we go, I have an incredible sound engineer and producer, and I want to spotlight his work specifically today. Eric Oz does a masterful job of making what you hear be free of long pauses, ums and ahs, and all kinds of vocal tics that we all have when speaking extemporaneously for an hour. He has a great talent for this work and has an even bigger desire to make each episode perfect for you, our listeners. Thank you, Eric. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic Take the A Train, written by Billy Strayhorn and performed by the wonderful BBC Big Band Orchestra. And as always, I leave you with my two consistent reminders. Number one, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And number two, love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.